This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by Leah and Matt or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Inspire Wealth Partners or Entrusted Accounting. Clients of Inspire Wealth Partners may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to Money Rules Don't Rule. We're your hosts, Leah Haight and Matt Cooley. And today we're talking about the cost of a college education and the overall return on your life. We're going to look back for the last 50, 100 years and see where did colleges and universities essentially start and how did we pick up that trend that that was the thing to do? Do we put too much expectation on 18-year-olds to understand the cost of their school debt, really, without the benefit of hindsight? And how do we fund higher education and how does that translate into the jobs we have later and our overall financial planning for the rest of our life? So first off, Matt, how are you? Doing good, Leah. I'm happy to be here. I am also happy that college is a chapter that is closed in my life and I don't have to go through this process any longer. So I'm doing well. Me too. I am glad that is behind me, but very grateful that I had the opportunity for that experience. So listeners, we will chime in with some of our own personal anecdotes about the cost of college and our experiences, but let's just get started. Matt, I know you've done quite a bit of research for today's episode, just looking back on the history of college and education, the cost, and even the motivation. Tell us what you know. Yeah, it's interesting to learn about the genesis of college and paying for college. And college started before the 1920s, but in the 1920s, I think there was uh, a sentiment shift in college and how it was paid for. John Rockefeller, business titan, one of the most influential people in the world at that time, felt like society shouldn't expect students to pay a material sum of money for college because most of the students ended up in low-paying but society benefiting careers. So he thought that it behooved the nation to keep costs low by supplementing the cost of college with endowments and gifts from people like himself. And apparently that at the time, that was a commonly held sentiment. As time went on, more people started going to college and these society benefiting careers that many students entered into began turning into pretty lucrative careers. You know, at the time it originally was trade schools and then it started to evolve into all sorts of different careers and education paths that you could go to college for. Rockefeller and many others reasoned that because higher education had now become a ticket to higher earning careers and valuable skills that, well, you should have to pay more for it because you could. And so certainly that sentiment shift in what college was, how it should be paid for, how much it should cost during the early to mid 20th century. And for the people that were supplementing that, maybe some greed started to creep in for those people that were helping fund these student educations. I, you know, I don't know. Matt, that is fascinating to me. Just a a look back to the roots and so we can see kind of where we've been and where we're going. And so we can start to maybe make some changes now. So what I hear is that it used to be kind of an overall societal benefit and society had some skin in the game for productive members of society. That's fantastic. When I look back to maybe our parents' generation, the boomers, so a little bit after the 1920s, what I remember from stories growing up is that they they kind of paid as they went. 
taking out student loans was not necessarily a thing. Um, tuition was, you know, quote unquote affordable. So they could kind of work and school at the same time without taking on those massive loans. And now, you know, several more years after that, the next generation were kind of like college is more of a social experience than it is in like learning skills and trades and knowledge. So we can definitely see kind of this arc trajectory. And now in the current conversation of how expensive education is, it's really interesting to kind of remember some of those roots and see if we can't try and get back there. Yeah, it's interesting. A college degree has certainly become a basic requirement for professional jobs and not getting a college degree can put you at a major disadvantage in the job market. But we look at where we are today and starting your career with an absolute mountain of debt is also quite a disadvantage. That's a good segue, Matt. That is a good segue. Do we put too much expectation on eight-year-olds? Excuse me on 18-year-olds to understand the cost of their school debt without the benefit of hindsight. And I say hindsight because now I'm 20 years out of college and I can look back and say like, whoa, college was awesome. It was like summer camp. I would do it again in a heartbeat. But I also was able to get into college through an incredible amount of hard work when I was in high school to pursue scholarships to pursue some grants and funding. So when I look back on that now, I'm, I'm not sure I had any foresight into what I was getting into, into what I was signing up for. I remember kind of some exit loan counseling as you are in your last semester of college, as you're a senior, before you're just so ready to get out the door, they try and stop you at the door and say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, don't forget, you you have to pay us back. And like, no one's paying attention. So, you know, we're taking on this massive debt and, and that debt is going to stay with us for a long time. What can we expect from 18-year-olds getting into this? It's finally, you... Uh... You misspoke and said, do we put too much expectation on eight-year-olds versus 18-year-olds? And I feel like eight-year-olds have a better idea of what they want to do with their life than 18-year-olds. Something happens in those 10 years. I don't know what, but... For sure. You ask any eight-year-old what they want to be with when they grow up, they answer just like that. Firefighter, you know, professional athlete or whatever it is. But somewhere along those 10 years, we get confused, I think. Good point. I, as my nieces and nephews and cousins start to reach 17, 18, 19 years old, I'm trying to do a, a healthy job of not just constantly berating them with like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's a lot of pressure. Just kind of, you will know when I point to you from my favorite Muppets line, like they will, they will show us when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a big decision. You're, you're planning for your financial future and it starts with college and it's a decision that can affect the type of lifestyle you're able to afford for much of the rest of your life. Many students and families either don't plan for how they're going to pay for college or they start planning the spring or summer before they go to college. And that's, that's too late in the process. The process should really start at least a couple years in advance of college and begin thinking about colleges you can actually afford. And when you talk about what you can actually afford, there's so many different tools and calculators and resources out there that can help you better understand what you are getting into. There's a website called Educate to Career, and it's a website that helps families in the education planning process. And it has a free tool called the Net Price Calculator and Expected Family Contribution Calculators on the website to determine how much you, be, you may be able to receive an aid and how much you may need to borrow. And from there, it also has free tools that allow you to run a variety of simulations, like how much you may earn from a specific major or a specific degree, where you plan to live after college. And you don't have to know exactly what you're going to do and what exactly what this is going to look like, but it can give you an idea of how this all pencils out. It can give you an idea of 
where you plan to go to college and how much you may receive in, in scholarship based on where you go. So you can run a simulation as a biology major versus a teacher or living in San Francisco versus living in somewhere in the Midwest it can just give you a better idea of kind of what this budgeting process looks like. Thanks for that, Matt. And listeners, we will be sure to put these websites and places that we recommend to just start looking, to just start figuring out if this is something that's going to work for you. We will definitely put those things in our show notes. So Matt, thank you so much for those resources. I think just really paying attention to the cost of college before you start. You know, when I was growing up, I had the experience where I felt like my parent was essentially like strong arming me into college and in the best way, you know, the best, most loving way possible. Like this kid is going to survive and be able to take care of herself. And I'm so grateful for that. But I have a distinct memory when I was 18 years old, a senior in high school. And I was like, I don't want to go to college. I don't know what I want to do. I just want to take a year off and figure it out. And my parent was like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Cause you're not going to live here. I'm not going to support you. And I was like, what, why not? <laughs> because I like I just felt pigeonholed. And so like, fine, I'll go to school. And of course, yes, the best thing that I could have done for me at the time was to go to school and experience that. But I also remember feeling at a crossroads and feeling unsure what to do and feeling like I had no other choice or option. So really interesting to kind of get at this crossroads and feel like it comes up quickly instead of planning for it and seeing what it what's going to happen. And I think that right now a lot of parents with college-age students are willing to take um, a creative approach to educating their children and life experience versus just the book learning experience and maybe making some compromises in trades. Like, all right, college-age student, like take a year off and here's an allowance, but at the end of that year, like school is going to happen or um, trade schools or vocational schools. I think that there are a lot of creative options right now instead of taking on incredible debt without really realizing what's happening. Yeah, it's a great point, Leah. 17-year-olds probably don't know exactly what they want to do for the rest of their life, and that's okay. But going back to the planning piece of this, it's like almost setting a budget. If you want to live in New York City after college as a single person, maybe based on the degree you get, you an entry-level job might pay you around $50,000. You got to factor in taxes. That's going to, in New York City, that's going to eat into probably $10,000 of that. So you're at $40,000 a year, plus rent in New York City, plus food, plus transportation, plus these student loan repayments, plus saving for retirement. You have to do the math. And I think that's the point I was trying to make about do this work in advance of signing on the dotted line that you're taking out X number of dollars in student loans. Because at the end of the day, you really want to make sure that, yeah, you're going to college to hopefully develop skills that you're going to use and have a passion for later on in life. But you also have to be reasonable about what's possible and maybe what's not so that you can set yourself up for financial success after college. And I know that's, that's really hard to do as a, you know, a 16, 17, 18 year old. Right. And not everyone has the benefit of parents with either resources or bandwidth to help continue to launch you into that phase of your life. I did do some research and found some statistics where about 70% of high school students do go on to a college or university, whether Votech or two-year, four-year. Um, so it's definitely kind of the thing to do right now that does have the opportunity to set you apart for higher earning potential in your life. Higher earning potential definitely means higher happiness quotient, but what is happening in our higher education right now 
is it just inefficient bureaucracy instead of producing productive members of society? Like, is there another way to train, educate, and grow without such high costs? Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? It is interesting to observe the average cost of obtaining a college degree. Maybe interesting is not the right word. Maybe uh, sombering is a better word for it. But the average cost of obtaining a college degree has soared exponentially relative to overall inflation over the last few decades. The Bureau of Labor Statistics notes that general inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, has risen by about 240% since 1980, so roughly the last 40 years. In that same time period, the Bureau also reports that college tuition and fees have increased over 1,200% during that time period. So the average cost of obtaining a college degree has, has become very, very costly. And we can talk a little bit about why college costs have risen to the extent that they have. I've got some thoughts. Leah, do you have any thoughts on And obviously we're not experts and this isn't, there's a million different factors that go into why the cost of college has increased relative to general inflation. But what are your theories around why the cost of college has risen to the extent that it has? Good point, Matt. And yes, I just have theories. I don't have hard research on this listeners, but I think just observing it, having gone through the system and now having the benefit of that hindsight, I experienced some incredible academics in my university experience, but the university at that time was also starting to turn toward educating the whole person. And what does that mean? That's your your physical person, your sports, your athletics, your social person, your spiritual person, trying to educate the whole person instead of essentially what we sign up for is we get a degree in X. We get a degree in a body of knowledge or a piece of academic, whether it's a business school, humanity school, engineering, biology, that's what we're getting degrees in. And yet there seems to be quite a bit of focus on university institutions educating beyond that or investing in people beyond that. But I don't think we have good statistics. Once students leave university, is that even beneficial? I think a lot of costs are going into college education right now, and it has a lot to do with support staff and more so than just like the learning and the academia of that. Um, We can also talk about how PhD professors are getting fewer and fewer on campuses and adjunct professors are getting greater and greater, and yet adjuncts are paid pittance, pittance for the amount of work that they do and the effort and the passion that they bring to it. So We talk about education from a degree in a specialty, but I think that the education is spending an exorbitant amount of time on other aspects of education that don't have anything to do with that. Yeah, I think if you looked at at the cost of education, colleges are certainly receiving less in state and federal funding than they have in years prior. There's an increase in the demand for college when you look at the supply the number of institutions has actually been decreasing since 2012. So increase in demand, decrease in supply, and that certainly attributes to the rising cost of college. You also look at uh, the administrative costs, facility improvements. Colleges are vying for students and it's competitive for them. They want high-performing students to go to their college and they need to continue to innovate and get better. Even though there's been a decrease in supply, it still is competitive for these colleges. And so they're spending money left and right to try to entice these students to come to to their college. You know, I think if you look at student loans, 
the fact that student loans and the cost of college has has increased at the rate it has, you also couple that with relatively stagnant wage growth. That's a huge problem. And that's that's the reason why we have one point five trillion dollars in student loans. The cost of tuition over the last 30 years has grown eight times faster than wages have. Oh, my gosh. Eight times faster. There's no way to catch up. That's incredible, Matt. Yeah, we are we are starting to see that slow, which is great news. Um, in 2020, we saw the lowest change in the average cost of college coming at in at an increase of only 0.6% year over year. That was primarily attributed to the shift to online classes during COVID. But some schools are starting to offer discounts, and some have announced that their regularly scheduled tuition hikes in the near future won't be hiked. And so I think colleges are starting to understand that these costs are exorbitant for a lot of people. And then a lot of people are deciding to do alternative things like go to trade school or not go to college and become entrepreneurs. And so I think schools are doing things to start to combat that in an effort to keep these costs down as, as much as they can. Yeah, Matt, I distinctly remember the way that I was able to pay for school was through some very generous benefactors, through private scholarships, through grant money, uh, federal and institutional. So it sounds like there's this sticker price of the cost of college, but a lot of students, myself included, found creative ways to pay that sticker price. What does your research show in that department, Matt? Yeah, the New York Times reports that 89% of students at private nonprofit four-year colleges aren't paying full sticker price. 11% of all students are actually paying full sticker price. At private liberal arts colleges, the average student paid 50% of the sticker price in 2018. So the cost of education is increasing at an exorbitant rate, or at least historically has, but most students aren't paying that exorbitant rate that is published. Good to know. So that gives me hope that there are some some ways to strategize how to get that education and even that experience without being so burdened and blanketed in debt. It's not to say that the debt is not going to be there, um, but that there might be some strategies to not be just so fearful of the sticker shock. Yeah, that's a good point. Anything else to say on this topic, Matt, before we move on? No, I think I think stats would also show that the the debt will be there. Planning to borrow is usually, I'm not going to say it's a no-brainer. It probably used to be a no-brainer, but with the increased cost of college education, you need to do some math to figure out if it is a no-brainer for you. But the question usually becomes, how much do you borrow and, and how do you pay it back? A recent study from a website called College as Student Loans found 55% of families plan to take out student loans this year. And of that, more than half of, of that number plan to take out somewhere between ten dollars and $40,000 in student loans, and about a quarter plan to borrow more than $75,000 this year. So like you said, the, the loans are going to be there, but the question becomes, how much do you borrow and do you have a plan of attack for paying it back? Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Let's definitely keep that in mind. Having a plan, setting expectations, knowing what you're getting into. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I've been thinking about in terms of colleges, university, and we've we've kind of spoken about it today, this concept of like the tug of war between humanities and the technical or business schools. Like I have a degree in the humanities and I also have a degree in business. And what are the consequences um, in a society of not pursuing a well-rounded education? Like I can't imagine my life without my exploration of the humanities and what that brings to a well-rounded person instead of simply pursuing money for money's sake, profit for profit's sake. You know, those long-term consequences of like all work and no play, what are, what are we doing here? What's going on? It's a tricky balance. 
Matt, it's a tricky balance because when you're 18 and you're so excited to meet some friends and learn some new skill sets and maybe you grew up in a household where your parents were attorneys or teachers or tradespeople and then that is what you saw and learned and so that is what you're going to do. When I was in the business school, I can't tell you how many students I went to school with to become accountants because their parents were accountants. I know so many people who are tradespeople because their parents were tradespeople. So so that is also interesting. I think that that also might beg the question, like the role of mentors, the role of different types of learning, of internships. There are a lot of ways to earn a healthy living while also pursuing your passion. So listeners, I'm definitely not advocating for follow the money at all costs. Oh my gosh. I'm not an accountant because I like accounting. I'm an accountant because I like people. And this is a way to interact and engage with people. For everyone, it's different in terms of what we find that interests us in our life and how we want to live and structure that life. Not everyone is a business owner. Not everyone is a tradesperson. So Matt, I'm curious about you, like passion and profit. What do you think really drew you into your career? I started my career as an accountant. Uh, and one of the reasons I did is because I had family friends and people that were close to me that were accountants and made good money. And, you know, that's something that at the time I was looped into, I guess, you know, I think I had family members that as I'm thinking about where to go to college, what to major in, they said, well, well, how are you going to pay for that? Oh, that's a good degree. You can make a lot of money with that degree. And I think that was just something that was front and center for me was looking at the return on investment for my degree. And I got into accounting and thought I could make good money and realized after one busy season, I do not like this. This is not what I have a passion for. I cannot envision myself doing this a whole lot longer. And so it is a fine line between chasing the money and the return on investment and find some, something that you're passionate about. And I think most people, their first job, they realize what they like and what they don't like. And there are very few people, especially in today's day and age with job hopping, your first job is likely not going to be your last job. And that's that's been a philosophical and fundamental shift across generations. You know, back in the mid 20th century, you got a job and you you worked at GM for 50 years or you worked at Boeing for 50 years and you had a nice pension and that's how you retired. And now I think people are taking their their 20s and even 30s to to get their feet wet and figure out what they really want to do with their lives. I, I found very early what I what I didn't like doing, which was good, but I, I pursued a degree that was helpful in practice. And I take many lessons that I learned with my accounting degree and apply them to my life today. But um, it's just something that I got into be, maybe for the wrong reasons, to be quite honest. Good story, Matt. Thanks for sharing that. My first job, I was a bookseller. And I don't think it's a surprise that my first degree is in English literature. So I distinctly remember choosing that. I had an incredible professor my first semester that just got me hooked, absolutely got me hooked on books and words um, as if I wasn't already, but just even more so. And my experience at the time, I met a bunch of people in the business school and quite frankly, Matt, they were miserable. They were miserable. They told me as such. They're like, oh, I hate this. It's so awful, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh my gosh. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I really don't. But I cannot imagine spending the next four years doing something that I absolutely did not like. So English degree it was. And I got some looks. and like, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a teacher? I said, no, I don't want to be a teacher. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to get a master's degree? Are you going to write? No, I don't want to do that either. I don't know. I learned how to learn. And that skill set is what got me through the next several years until I got to a place in my life when I figured out 
I'm living in a small town. How do I earn a living here? The people who earned a living in the small town where I was at, they earned their living as either professionals or business owners. And I looked around and I was like, I am not a doctor and I am not a lawyer. Huh. How about I go be an accountant? Oh my gosh. Kind of like mind blown, divine inspiration. Like where did this come from? Leah, the English major going back to business school, like has she lost her mind? And it's like the perfect thing for me. It satisfied so many things I wanted for my life, but man, I had to go back to school. I was not ready for it the first time. So there's a lot of flexibility in that. And I think similar to you, like, you know, on the flip side, you got into something and realized quickly that it was not what you wanted. And I got into something and knew that it was what I wanted, English literature. It was something that I would take with me the rest of my life. And no one could take that away from me, whether or not I used that as a job or not. And to this day, it has been greatly beneficial. I can compose on the fly. I can spell check with the best of them. Like, it's definitely, definitely been a valuable skill set. And one that I had to kind of learn through, but also figure out now, what am I going to do to earn a living? And I took my time figuring it out and I was willing to spend the money to go back and do it. That's a great story, Leah. And there's, there's so much pressure on, on kids to not only find what they're passionate about, but also do it quickly. I think our parents and our grandparents and the people around us, they want to see us succeed so badly. And maybe their definition of success is different than the college student's definition of success. And you bring up the point of, oh, I was an English major and people around me are saying, well, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to make money? I think that's maybe how I felt as a college student of that pressure of, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to make money? How am I, I going to impress the people, people around me? And I fell into that trap and it sounds like you didn't. Um, so kudos to you. I fell into the trap of, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue this degree and I'm going to make good money and I'm going to look like a star in their eyes. And um, I think as a 17, 18 year old, it's easy to fall fall into some of that pressure that a lot of kids ar around them have to succeed quickly and figure out what they want to do without taking those years to to kind of find their way. Yeah. There's no right path. There's no money rule to get us all to the same place, but to be intentional, ask questions, be honest about it with the people in your life for what you need and the route you're taking, but also not being afraid to jump in and do hard things. It was hard, Matt, the story I told earlier about like, I didn't want to go and I went. It was hard, Matt, for you to start something and change direction. It's hard. We can do hard things. Don't let that paralyze us. Stay in the game. Good things will come of it and the best is yet to come. So as we wrap up today's conversation, Matt, any, any takeaways? One thing I've heard is like, there's no free lunch. Like there's a cost somewhere. There's a cost to society. There's a cost to um, the students, parents, benefactors. There's no free lunch. There is a cost in all of this, but also find a way to have a little skin in the game. What are some takeaways for you, Matt? Yeah, takeaways for parents and grandparents. Um, I have a lot of conversations with parents and grandparents and they often ask me how paying for their kids or grandkids education, if that's something that's important to them, how should they balance saving for the kids education and also their own retirement? And I think generally you need to put your own oxygen mask on first, make sure you're able to sustain your lifestyle in retirement by getting a financial plan in place and quantifying what that costs. And then from there, you can model different scenarios and contributions for your college students. You can always borrow for college, but you can't borrow for your own retirement. I think that would be my takeaway for, for parents and grandparents. And my takeaway for, for students is, you know, there are a good number of colleges out there that are willing to negotiate their cost of attendance through grants and scholarships and other aid packages. And not a lot of people know that, but 
colleges know everyone cannot pay the full price of admission and they need students to continue to exist. And that competition for students is, is fierce. And if you have a better offer from another school, show the school that maybe you'd rather go to and see if you are willing, if, if they are willing to budge on any of their grants or scholarship or, or aid, use it as leverage. You probably aren't going to get a full ride scholarship by doing that, but you can often negotiate a few thousand dollars per year by leveraging offers from other institutions. Thanks for those. Listeners, chime in, let us know what takeaways you have from today's conversation. Check out the show notes so you can find links to some of these resources we talked about today. And Matt, I will send us off with a quote before we say goodbye. It's from author Emily Dickinson. What do we live for if it is not to make life less difficult for each other? From poet Emily Dickinson. Good stuff. All right. Thanks, listeners. We will talk to you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.